Welcome to our social landscape. I'm J.R. Woodward. My guest today is U.S. sports writer Dave Zirin, author of 10, soon to be 11, books on the politics and history of sport. He's the first sports editor of The Nation, America's longest-running weekly magazine, as well as the writer and host of a blog and podcast called The Edge of Sports. Dave has appeared on a wide variety of shows, including ESPN's Outside the Lines, NBC's Last Call, The Rachel Maddow Show, C-SPAN, Democracy Now!, All Things Considered, etc., etc. And his writing's been featured across the country, from the New York Times to the Los Angeles Times, and most places in between. I was fortunate to have 30 minutes or so with the man Cornell West has called the finest, most important writer on sports and politics in America. I'd like to know. So, um, can you tell me a little bit about your background? Like, what made you decide to be a writer generally and then study sports specifically? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I grew up in New York City, just a huge sports fan, top to bottom. And then I went to college and became a history major. And I saw those as really two distinct worlds. I was a huge sports fan and I was a history major and I was very interested in politics. And I never really saw how those worlds connected. And then a basketball player named Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf made the decision that he wasn't going to come out for the anthem before Denver Nuggets games. And I followed that story very closely and it led me down a, a rabbit hole of athlete activists and the history of athlete activists and really thinking critically about the politics of sports and what I'd been consuming all those years. And in those days, of course, the rabbit hole was not going on the internet. I mean, I had to really do some research and go in the library, use microfilm and microfiche. microfiche. <laughs> and, uh, it, it, and, and that created the basis for what I do now. Um, you know, it made me want to do a different kind of sports writing. It made me want to write about the history and politics of athletes and the past and present of that. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just wrote a piece today that's going to go up about five years since Kaepernick first didn't stand for the anthem. And it's just, it's sometimes interesting to me that it's all these years later and it's uh, a lot of these same issues. Yeah. Five years. Can't believe it's been that long. Yeah. And, but, but it's been 20 years or more. 25 years since Raouf. Yep. So it's just like these, uh, these flashpoints take place in which we critically examine the role that sports plays in patriotism, war, and uh, propping up a system that uh, uses racism as one of its ruling methods. So it's uh, that, that there's no shortage of things to write about. Right. Yeah. Or, or to talk about in a sociology class. Yeah. You're kind of jumping ahead. Cause I wanted to talk about one or two of those, but I do remember that uh, Chris Jackson, you know, my dad was an LSU alum. So we always grew up watching Dale Brown and Shaquille O'Neal and Chris Jackson, you know? And uh, so when that happened, when he became Mahmoud Abdul Rauf, and I, I followed that closely as well. And I was at a game. Um, I remember after a Florida LSU game and LSU had won and it was in Gainesville and crowd, the, the LSU players were kind of dancing in the, in the, after the game and the crowd was yelling, go back to Africa, go back to Africa. You know, these guys are from like Hattiesburg, Mississippi and shit, you know? So, um, so I, I really started paying attention to it about that time as well. Would, were you always kind of progressively viewing sport or was that kind of a switch for you? Well, no, I was very political and, and left-wing in college. I just saw my um, 
my sports love to be distinct from that. Okay. You know, it was something I also didn't talk about in left wing circles because there was a real anti sports sentiment. Yeah. Um, and when I started to really learn about people like Muhammad Ali, I was in Billie Jean King. I was just utterly befuddled by the fact that it felt like the left was rejecting all of this stuff wholesale. Mm-hmm. When you have, you know, the most famous draft resistor in the history of war and who was a boxer. And when you have uh, this icon of the women's liberation movement, who is a tennis player, it's like, we should know about sports. We should understand sports, not just because of these athletes who use the platform of sports to speak out, but because sports should be something that's universal. Sports should be something that everybody gets to take part of. Sports should be a demand Mm -hmm. uh, as part of having a healthy society. So I, I didn't like, the wholesale rejection of it by the left. And so that was one of my missions when I started doing this work was to try to get discussions about sports in, in uh, resistance and liberation spaces. Mm-hmm. Um, as a warm up, can you give it 25 words or less uh, summation of the world of sports since Rudy Gobert touched a bunch of microphones and then five days later, he has COVID a couple of days later, the whole league shuts down. What's the, your takeaway really from this last 18 months or so? The players kept the lights on. Mm-hmm. Oh, wait, does it have to be under 25 words? <laughs> no. Oh, it's really <laughs> a lot. Good you uh, can't, it's a lot to talk about. You got to understand that, though, about the players keeping the lights on and playing, even though you know, there would have been a lot of good reason for them not to play. Sure. Uh, keeping the, the, the television funds going and all the rest of it and how – because then you the, the collision between the pandemic and then the police murder of George Floyd and then the demonstrations that that caused um, led many athletes, centrally black athletes, to then use their platform to speak out in broader and more unprecedented ways than we've seen since the 1960s, if not ever. Mm-hmm. So then when you couple that with the pandemic, it meant that a lot of leagues – bent over backwards to show the players that they also cared about racism. Yeah. And even though a lot of it was, was just pure marketing fluff and superficial crap, there was this projection of saying, yes, we also believe in player power. We're also anti-racist. And I think the last year, cause we've got to comprise the whole 18 months uh, with your question, the last year, or I should say the last six months or so, I think has seen kind of like a brutal realignment just like with the critical race theory hysteria in places like Florida, Florida, yeah. um, you've also seen this kind of uh, this reassertion of hierarchy in the world of sports, a backlash against what happened in 2020. So since Rudy Gobert touched those microphones, you had a mass anti-racist uprising that reflected itself in the world of sports. You had leagues that tried to cut with that, and now the same leagues are cutting against it proving yet again that uh, ownership is the most reactionary element in the world of sports. Yeah. You, you I was going to ask you this later, but since you brought it up, what do you think about the, like the BLM signs on the baseball fields? You know, you wrote the blog post about woke capitalism, you know, in the Super Bowl. does it, is it legitimate? Are they legitimate concerns or are they just riding the wave? Does it even, does it matter? Well, yeah, I mean, it does matter. And they're clearly were just riding the wave and cutting with their own athletes sentiment and 
trying to connect with a young generation that is more diverse and less tolerant of intolerance than any generation in the history of the United States. But they also showed that this has a shelf life. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so was it sincere? Well, if it was sincere, they wouldn't be uh, taking it off the court and taking it out of the end zone now. Right. As we speak, it's not sincere at all. Um, did it matter? Yeah, it matters from a, I think from a sociological perspective of, of seeing just how deep the crisis was and how the needs of ruling institutions to cut with instead of against that crisis was so profound. They didn't go the Trumpist route. Right. They went the route of saying, no, it, it's good to care about racism and we also care. Mm-hmm. But as we're seeing, it also had a very short shelf life. Yeah. So it's a hell of a signpost of how deep the crisis is, but it's to view it as sincere acts of anti-racism, I mean, is to ignore the fact that they've, you know, rolled up the banners and put them in the mothballs. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You'd have to suspend belief. Um, one of the themes I wanted to hit on was uh, the sport and what you even call what we call athletes being kind of a social construction, like social definitions of these things. Cause I think it opens up a lot of avenues um, for inspection because you know, I, I've heard a lot of people say you probably have to, if we could just kind of strip away the politics and just have pure sport or pure athletes. And we've, you know, both seen really talented people, but politics has always been there and it's always been a part of the definition of these things. If, if we define, you know, there's some list of the best athlete ever, maybe being Michael Jordan, but how do you define athletic? If we define it as, you know, grace, balance, and dexterity, maybe Nadia Comaneci would be the best athlete ever. So these things are, are mediated. So there's, there's na- nature there, like when we see race or sex or gender, but they're mediated socially. So I was wondering if you could talk about that, like how has, our social experience really defined what sports are and what being an athlete means? Well, I mean, I think that the starting point is, you know, history becomes really important with a question like that because um, sports as an organized profit-making entity starts in the United States in the 19th century with, with its cornerstone being the myth of inclusion and the reality of exclusion. Okay. And so inclusion meant the, the rhetoric that anybody who's good enough can take the playing field. Therefore, sports is a re- true reflection of the United States where if anybody wants to succeed, they can. So, and, and that, that was not, that, that was said explicitly mm-hmm. by people who were founding the institution of sports. Sports is America. Sports is war. Sports comes of age at the same time that the U.S. is starting to express its imperial ambitions around the globe. And so it walks hand in hand with that. The reality, of course, though, is one of exclusion. You know, if you're black, if you're a woman, uh, God forbid if you're gay, you know, you're not finding any space in sports for you. So sports has been political since day one because there's been this fight for inclusion uh, from its earliest days. Mm-hmm. Now, to get to the heart of your question, though, it's like that early imprint of the 19th century, that construction is still I think very paramount in the world of sports. Like, do we prize men or women? Do we prize great white athletes over black athletes if given the opportunity to do so? Mm -hmm. Um, How do we treat black athletes? Do we view them as incredible workers whose talent and hard work has made them rich? No, of course not. There's this rhetoric about they should be grateful for being able to play a game. And you never hear that rhetoric about gratitude towards white athletes. It seems to be exclusively weaponized towards the LeBron Jameses of this world. Mm -hmm. So 
Yeah. So attacking black, black athletes has been a sport of politicians for a hundred years. And since Jack Johnson, for goodness sakes, and something very relevant today. And of course it, it constructs who we choose to lionize and who we choose to demonize and who we choose to ignore. Right. Yeah, I think your book, um, the Zen series you did, uh, yeah. People's History of Sports in the United States, is a great a great discussion of that. You know, if any, if for anybody who hasn't read it, like that's a just wonderful how you bring in all that from really from day one. Like you say, did you ever uh, meet Howard Zinn? Oh yeah, you did. Oh, he's a close friend. We no we, shit. Um, very, yeah, we went towards the end of his life when um, he was sharp as attack until the very very end, but uh, but his his physicality got, got weaker. So I went on tour with him several times and we did uh, like these talking sessions where he'd be able to sit and, like, cause his old style was to stand up at a podium and he would keep audiences wrapped for 60, 90 minutes. Yeah. He couldn't do that into his eighties. So we would sit across from each other and I would throw him questions like capitalism. What do you think about that? <laughs> And he would just go off for 30 minutes. So <laughs> you tell him to stop. <laughs> it was the easiest. I, I never wanted to tell him to stop. Yeah, right. It was the easiest yeah. uh, interview I'd ever, I've ever done. <laughs> yeah. He's he kind of a, kind of a hero to, to, to some people on the left. When I was sort of getting into sociology and learning about a lot of these issues, you know, he was kind of a go-to. He and Noam Chomsky as well. Oh, yeah. Um, and they, so- they were good friends, even though, and I've always, you know, they were friends for decades. And um, at Howard's funeral, Noam spoke very beautifully and movingly. But I, I was struck once again, uh, as I have been many times over the years, at how they could have such a close friendship when Howard was this eternal optimist about people in struggle. Mm-hmm. And Noam, even though he shared Howard's politics, is not exactly feeling that there are good times around the corner. Yeah, and not looking on the bright side of, of life very often. I always wondered what still do they talk too. about when it's just with them. Yeah, I know. He's still going strong too. You still see Chomsky pumping up all the time. Oh, in his nineties, right? Yeah, he's old as hell. Yeah. Okay. As uh, in sociology, we study sport as an institution. We look at it as a reflection of society and our values, but also it creates and drives our culture and our, our values. So I was wanting to see if you would maybe talk a little bit about how sports has been used in the past. You've hit on some already to recreate our social world in positive, negative ways, maybe, and also how it's still being used to either support the status quo and at times to challenge the status quo. And so I thought one way to do that would be to frame it around some, you know, major factors of social differentiation, like race, sex, gender, and maybe economics or, social class. So if we start with race, what does sport teach us about race and ethnicity in the US? If you were just going to look and say what are the lessons we learned from sport about race in the country, what do you think we would under, how would we understand race and ethnicity? I mean, I I think some of it goes back to what I was saying earlier about inclusion and exclusion For about sure. so much of the 20th century, so much time and energy has been spent by just the idea of having a seat at the table by black Americans, by immigrants, by brown immigrants in particular. And sports has shown so clearly that struggle is a necessity to get in those spaces, but also that struggle only gets you so far. And like Michael Bennett, the football player said to me, and I think this applies to all sports, he said the great myth of the NFL is that it's, integra- is that it's integrated. 
Mm-hmm. He said it is segregated if you understand the NFL as a whole. Yeah. I think what we would call a totality. And the whole of the NFL means that it's black people whose bodies are sacrificed on the field in so many different ways. And ownership is white. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. General managers are largely white. Executives are largely white. Coaches are largely white. And that's segregation. And that sends its own message about who are, get to be thinkers in society versus who, who are workers themselves. Yeah. And this other football player, Brian Mitchell, he once said to me that he said the difference, and I think this is it really interesting. He said to me, the difference between a football player and a regular worker. And he answered this question when asked about why do football players make so much money? But I think it's actually deeper than that. He said the difference between a football player and a regular worker is that if you pretend you're a cook, if you're a cook, you cook a steak. If you're a football player, you're both the cook and the steak. Hmm. Interesting. And yeah. I was just like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And the, but that also goes to then the perception of athletes as both laborers and they're the product of their, their own labor. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's not the beef that gets tenderized. It's their own bodies that get tenderized. And, uh, and that's something that ownership gets to opt out of while still reaping the lion's share of the profits. Sure. What about currently we see, uh, the race norming, um, sure. The, uh, they stopped that apparently the, the, NFL they said, said they they're not going to use that anymore. It. Yeah, yeah. They said they would take steps to stop it and also be a voice in the medical community uh, to stop it, which which is so ridiculous. It's like when they said right. they were going to be a voice for, against violence against women. And, right, you know, right. The NFL has this incredibly outsized, like under Roger Goodell to be specific, because I think it's that's, this actually starts with Goodell. Is, and this is also very linked to marketing, is that you know football is family, football is America, football is not just football. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, it's this vital cultural force. And he got hoisted with his own petard when Kaepernick took that knee right. because all of a sudden it exposed what football actually is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know? yeah. And so, so that, that's, I think, very important. So um, you fast forward to today and it, it's, it's, it's in many respects the same game, except the only difference is that athletes have more access to the public through social media. And I also think this young generation of athletes is less willing to put up with things that their that their uh, parents and grandparents were willing to put up with. Mm-hmm. Something else you wrote about with the swim caps, the FINA, the governing body of swimming. Did they um, ever end up allowing those caps to be worn? Did you did you see how that was resolved? I remember no. they, they they said they weren't they FINA had said they were you know, they weren't going to allow this caps that fit uh, afros because it's not the natural form of the head. But then they said they would reconsider. They were going to reconsider in light of, I think you said, critics and other purveyors of common sense uh, critiquing them. So I don't know if they ever were they if they officially recanted on that position or not. So they've said they'd look at it. That's it. They said it's under review. So and the Olympics are over. So and then one last thing about race, um, the mascot issue. So the first um, blog post I ever did a year and a half ago, it's something I had worked on for years in different areas, was about um, Native American mascots. And I, I quoted you as saying once 100 percent of this country, Native Americans are now nine point nine percent and we play sports on their graves. The rituals and dress are our own commercialized entertainment. Um, 
we've seen some changes here, the Washington football team, the Cleveland baseball team. What about the colleges? Do you see some changes there? Do you think Florida State's going to change? No, I don't think Florida State's going to change because um, they have such a sweetheart deal with the Seminole Nation. Right. Yeah, think, Florida, not the Oklahoma Seminole. But exactly. The- As I've written about, too, the majority of Seminole are in Oklahoma in this yeah. country uh, because of uh, violent displacement. Okay. So, yeah, I mean, the... You, you said it. I mean, I mean, we've seen the, I, I've done articles and interviewed uh, young indigenous activists about this and they, they're of, you know, it's like they, they have all the respect in the world for the people who fought around this issue for decades. And they also recognize that it's the Black Lives Matter movement that's changed the discussion about this. Sure. Yeah, definitely for yeah. Snyder. Yeah. Yeah. And made racism something that's mm-hmm. uh, bad for their bottom line. What about uh, one or two economic or social class related issues? Uh, you wrote an article recently about the Olympics. Um, what role does money play as we've just gone through the Tokyo Olympics? How do you see um, how do you see the relationship there between the the Olympic industry and uh, economics? I mean, everywhere the Olympics go, uh, they create debt displacement and the militarization of public space. Um, and you know, my friend, uh, Morgan Campbell, he's on the CBC. He had this great line where he said, we used to think of the Olympics as too big to fail. Maybe they become now too big to succeed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the economic imperative that drives the Olympic games is becoming a relic. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I see it changing dramatically or I see it becoming a, a the relic that I think it threatens to become. Okay. Um, and then one more for about economics, the owners and their stadiums, you know, your book, bad sports. I had, I've used that book in my class before and I've used, uh, my students hated these books, man, cause they just wanted to talk about sports center all day. You know, they didn't, I used, uh, inside the Olympic industry. I used, uh, little girls in pretty boxes, you oh, know, that's a great book. field, uh, field of schemes, you know, and I've used your bad sports. And so, yeah, but they're like, they're just so resistant to it. Um, yeah, no, they, they weren't, but, um, but what about the owners and stadi- uh, of stadiums? I just saw the uh, headline in the ESPN Buffalo Bills owners committed to paying for portion of proposed stadium costs. What a trooper. No, it happens all the time. The, the difference is that it's been discredited dramatically because we have a generation of data that shows that they don't, that, that we just don't have the, um, the economic capacity to keep doing this. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And uh, the data, I think, has been deadly for the public funding of stadiums movement because I used to have to get in debates all the time, like on the radio, about, like, is this stadium funding proposal good or bad? They won't even debate anymore. They used to have referendum about new stadiums. They don't do the referendums anymore. Yeah, yeah. Uh, There's this recognition, like Giuliani once said, if you have a referendum around stadiums, people won't vote for it. Right, yeah. Just about thuggish and honest as Giuliani gets. That's about it. Um, I wanted to talk about gender and I wanted to use that as a segue into talking more about uh, the, the protests because um, when you, you, the article you wrote recently about the Sports Illustrated activist athletes and they had chosen a couple and those were good choices in a sense, but there was also a number of people that they could have chosen that maybe are, are making deeper and, and one or two of them was in the WNBA and it seems like the leagues have a different um I don't know they just have a different take on activism, the NFL versus baseball or basketball, but the WNBA seem to be kind of heads and shoulders above 
uh, some of the other leagues in, in terms of their protesting. Jay Coakley, you know, Jay Coakley, the sports yeah. sociologist, I told him we were going to talk and he was, he sung your praises and he, Oh, he's such a hero. He's so. amazing. Yeah. So I interviewed him a couple months ago and uh, we stayed in touch and he said, uh, he would ask you who were the most effective sports activists today. And, um, so that made me kind of start thinking too about the WNBA. Oh, I named so many WNBA athletes. If you ask me that question, mm-hmm. say Maya Moore and, Brianna Stewart go to the top of the list in my mind. Yeah. As far as people who are actually effective. Yeah. Why is that uh, league you think taking done d- taking stronger steps than the other leagues you think? I just think the existence of being a woman who plays basketball in this country is such a, an incredible well of disrespect that it's taught them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't see much about protests of Israel Kyrie Irving, notwithstanding, you don't see much about that. I wonder if we'll start to see that issue becoming more, you know, BLM and Palestinians and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. There's more of a confluence there. I I hope we see more of that going forward. Certainly sports is very powerful because Israel uses sports as a method of, of international public relations. So to see it then challenged on that basis would be really important. And it wouldn't be the first time. I mean, I remember I went to pickets outside the Brooklyn Nets because the and there are, there are also big pickets in Portland, Oregon. When uh, the, the Maccabees, Tel Aviv, I believe they're from, uh, they they did a tour in the United States, and these tours are meant to drum up support for the Israeli state. And if they're acting in a manner, particularly with U.S. dollars, in a way that breeds and fosters oppression, people have every right to speak out. Okay, so then the last part would be just looking f- to the future. Um, another idea of Jay Coakley, he, he he put it this way: If you could be the new minister of sport, what would be some things you do? Because we've talked about sport being socially constructed and socially mediated. Can we create it in a way that's more humane in, in its current highly commercialized state, or do we need to deconstruct it, reconstruct it? What do we do going forward? Oh, I think we have to reclaim, not reject. So yeah, it needs to be deconstructed and reconstructed, but it shouldn't be rejected all out because we have to identify what we love about sports from what we don't love about sports. So first of all, we can demand what we don't love to change and also embrace what we do love. So I think like embracing athletes who use their platform to speak out for basic tenets of justice is a good thing. Eliminating public funding for stadiums is a good thing. Eliminating racist mascots is a good thing. Creating inclusive spaces for trans athletes, I think, is very important. Mm -hmm. And so we don't create a class of people in this country for whom sports is not allowed. You know, that's, I've say this often and it's so much, it's a cliche, but to me, sports is like fire and fire can cook a meal or it can burn down your house. Mm -hmm. We have to figure out how to make it cook a meal. All right, Dave, thank you very much uh, for your time. I appreciate it. You you got a million things pulling you in all different directions. Thank you very much again. Thank you. Sure. Take care. You've been listening to an interview with Dave Zirin on our social landscape, and I hope you enjoyed our conversation. If you did, please take a minute to follow, like, rate, and share the podcast in all the usual places. I thank Dave for taking the time to engage in a friendly chat. I taught the sociology of sport for years, and most semesters I used at least one of Dave's books, so I found his work to be extremely important for quite a while now. Therefore, I was thrilled to have the chance to pick his brain for a little bit. 
So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the interview, and I'll remind you that one of the purposes of this blog is to engage in public sociology. For me, the goal is to engage academic and non-academic audiences in critical discussions of social issues that are typically confined to the academic world. But it doesn't work if I'm the only one talking, so please feel free to sign up for the blog and become a member, which simply entails creating a username and a password. Then you can comment after each post. At the very least, please feel free to email me your comments and I'll be sure to respond. I'll post a link to Dave's work on my page, and if you're feeling so inclined, you can push the yellow donate button on the homepage. If you have any questions or comments, you can email me at jr at oursociallandscape.com. Thanks for listening. So